Hello, and welcome back to What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Robner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Friday this week at 10 a.m. on October 13th. As with all news in Washington, particularly this week, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So let's get to it. Today we're joined by Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning. Sarah Cliff of Vox. Hello. And we welcome back Julie Appleby, my colleague here at Kaiser Health News. Good morning. So, wow, what a week, particularly the end of it. It's, it's really like, what a 24 hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's hard to imagine that the president's health care executive order is not our top story, even though it happened yesterday. But last night in the middle of the deciding game five of the baseball playoffs here in D.C., sorry, Nats fans, that really hurt, President Trump announced he would be stopping payment of the so-called cost-sharing reductions that insurers are required to provide as discounts to people who buy insurance on the exchanges and earn less than 250% of poverty. Now, it's not like we didn't know this was coming, but the timing of it was really odd. I have the email here. It came at 10.47 p.m. So Some of us might have been in bed when this (laughs) happened. (laughs) Yeah, it was a start... It was a startling moment. It kind of felt like the big thing of the day was this executive order that had happened about 12 hours Which we will talk about Which we will talk about in a moment. So, but it seems like that was actually just the opening salvo in this, you know, buildup of things that the Trump administration wants to do to, you know, you know, make Obamacare work less well, to, you know, undermine how the law is working. So this is one, you know, Trump has flirted with for, for months now, talking about he might not pay these subsidies, he might. A lot of insurance companies, they priced for 2018, assuming these payments would not get made, assuming the decision we saw last night would happen. But there are also some insurance companies that didn't make those decisions. So and some states that didn't let some them. Some states that didn't let them. And I think, you know, I'm curious what you guys think. Um, it, it seems very uncertain, like, what this does to the marketplace. What are we, like, 17 days from the start of open enrollment right now? Um, I think maybe some insurance companies might pull out. We don't know. It seems like a very, it's a bit of a grenade to throw in right as we're about to start an open enrollment season. So I have been going back and forth over this last less than 12 hours, however long it's been, <laughs> about whether this timing is better or worse than, the, than it would have been if Trump had just immediately withdrawn the cost sharing reductions when he threatened to do it first, which I think was like in February. Yeah, it was early on. So I think here are the arguments that this is better timing. Uh, first of all, He's withdrawing the subsidies for the remainder of this year, and the insurers don't have the ability to exit for this year anymore, and they don't have the ability to increase their prices in the middle of the year. So if he'd done it earlier in the year, uh, we might have seen some insurance companies go belly up or just feel totally betrayed because they were left holding the bag and that they wouldn't come back for 2018. I Which think the they fact- now have. <laughs> right. But I think I think now like they've gotten mostly paid, and they have, as Sarah said, gone through this process of raising their rates for 2018 to kind of build in the risk. So it makes them it a little bit easier for them to maybe survive this. I think mm-hmm. if it had happened sooner, maybe they would have freaked out more because they would have really like experienced more substantial hits and they wouldn't have thought through how to cope with it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, like their contracts are signed and they have less ability to renegotiate higher prices if they didn't already ask for them. The contracts for next year. The contracts for next year. So I'm just curious what you guys think. Like, is this better timing or worse timing? I oh, go ahead. I think it's better. I agree with you. I think if this had happened in February, insurance companies 
just might have quit, you know, at the end of like 20, at the end of this year, said, we've lost a ton of money. Like, we don't want to do this anymore. You clearly don't support this marketplace. I think it's bad in any case for Obamacare. I think like the bottom line is that this is going to, you could see that happen in 2019 now, right? Like maybe, maybe it just pushes the timeline back a little bit of like when things start to get pretty bad on the marketplaces. And and they have to pay this money. So the insurers Mm -hmm. are on the hook for this. Now, these are the cost-sharing reductions. This is not going to leave the people who get these cost-sharing reductions on the hook. The insurers are going to have to pick up the bag for this. And basically, these are payments the government makes to these insurers so that they will lower the co-payments and deductibles for people who earn less than about $29,000 a year. So the, those people will continue to And it's about get, half the people on the about, exchanges. It's about 60% actually of enrollees on the exchanges that get these subsidies through these silver plans. So they will continue to get those reduced um, co-payments and deductibles, but the insurers are going to have to pick up the tab. So it'll be really interesting to see. And, they've, and like you've all said, they've built these into their rates, many of them, for next year. But the question is, will they stay in the market for next year? So I, I interviewed Jonathan Gruber, who I know is sort of a controversial figure in all of this, for a story that I wrote several months ago. And uh, I was talking to him about insurer behavior in these markets and you know why they seem so easily frightened. And uh, he said this thing to me that has really stuck in my mind where he said, you know, many mysteries of life can be explained by the fact that insurance companies are extremely risk averse uh, entities. And I, like, I just think that that is relevant here. I think for a lot of these insurance companies, if you think rationally, they're probably OK. Like they've they're, they're not going to lose money on this. But I do think that the combination of taking away these cost sharing reduction subsidies at the same time that the Trump administration also issued this executive order, which we can talk about the details of, but I think is also a signal that they and are- cutting the advertising enrollment, yeah. like all these things, it's all happening. of a piece. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, you know, I, I'm calling this episode. Let's blow it all up. <laughs> but this, like, this is the one thing that gives them an out from their contracts, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so I wonder if this happening at the same time as everything else yeah. uh, kind of panics people and leads to a run for the exit. Does it give them out for their contracts for next year? Yeah. yeah. They have they signed so contracts with a clause. Count- we might oh. see bear counties again because right. they solved that. We don't have any bear counties now, but who knows, right? So, yeah. Well, and, and I have sort of a picky legal question. In the in the official announcement last night that the that the Office of the Press Secretary sent out, it said, based on guidance from the Department of Justice, the Department of Health and Human Services has concluded that there is no appropriation for cost-sharing reduction payments to insurance companies under Obamacare. That's what the lawsuit was about. It said, in light of this analysis, the government cannot lawfully make the cost-sharing reduction payments. I'm not sure that second sentence is true because, yes, there was a federal district court judge who found that there was no appropriation. That's the, the argument. But she also stayed her ruling um, pending an appeal, which is still in the appeal is still sort of hanging around in the in the um, Court of Appeals in, in the District of Columbia. But given that that the judge specifically stayed her appeal, it's not really true that there's no legal authorization for these money for this well, money. Well, I, I think if you be- honestly believe as an executive branch that you don't have the legal authority to do something, I don't think it matters whether a judge told you to do it or not. I mean, I'm sorry. I don't think it matters whether a judge specifically told you that you can't pay it anymore. I mean, if the Obama, if the Trump administration really believes that these subsidies are not legal, I think it is within their rights to stop paying them. Now, of course, we're going to see lawsuits from injured parties who are going to come forward and try to stop them. And well, so- we've already got 16 states. I mean, the, the, the argument, and actually, I think I wrote this story a year ago this week that this could happen um, if Trump was elected. Uh, that the argument was that the, the Trump administration would drop the lawsuit and then mm-hmm. then it would have no it would drop the appeal and then it would have no legal authority. Um, but but in the interim, you have a bunch of attorneys general.
general from these blue states who have intervened and the court said, okay. So now you already, the question is whether they get to continue their lawsuit or whether they have to file separately. But you've got, you know, 16 states that are now saying, uh, hello, we don't want this money to stop. And we disagree with the judge's ruling that there isn't an appropriation. And besides, the House probably didn't have standing to sue. But that's, that's we're not going to go that far down the, you know, the legal rabbit hole. Um, but but definitely there'll be more lawsuits on this, which is just creating more uncertainty. Yes. Yeah, I think there are definitely because now you have like these three different parties, the White House, the attorneys general and the House. And you might see others like Margo was saying, like insurance companies might step forward and say, like, I was promised this money. Like, I have a reason to file a lawsuit. I think the question I have is about timeline. You know, can they force the Trump administration to make these payments? You know, I think the October ones, could they go out around the 20th of the, of the month? Those It seems like that ship has sailed, like they're not going to be able to compel the administration to make those payments. Um, and I, it seems like it might be one of those situations where the legal remedy shows up eventually, but it's like after the Obamacare marketplace are, are in some pretty dire straits. Now, Congress could step in and decide mm-hmm. to fund this, but what is the likelihood that they'll do that? That's, that's Well, that's the what question. they've been negotiating that we've been mm-hmm. talking about every week for the mm-hmm. last six weeks. That's one of the things that, that, you know, Senator Lamar Alexander says he would like to do. He wanted to fund them for two years. But, um, you know, we, we I, the Senate's out this week, so we obviously haven't heard but, anything. I mean, the politics of this in Congress are complicated. There are members of the Republican leadership, particularly in the House, uh, you know, Kevin Brady and uh, the Speaker of the House have said that they want these cost-sharing reduction payments to continue. I think their preference has always been that the White House continue making them so that they do not have to actually uh, put up a bill and vote on it. But so I don't really know. I mean, I think it will be interesting to see if some kind of legislative solution moves forward. If you look at Trump's tweet this morning and Trump's comments, you know, over the last long while, he has talked about his efforts to disrupt Obamacare as part of a strategy to force bipartisan cooperation on health reform. I don't know that an appropriation for the cost sharing reduction is necessarily the outcome that he (laughs) is imagining. But, you know, it's it's possible that this could spur Mm -hmm. that kind of action there. You know, Republicans don't really want to have to vote for this, but they may feel that they do now. All right. Well, before before we were so rudely interrupted by the CSR news, I guess the other big news of the week is the executive order that the president signed yesterday. Uh, it's kept us all guessing for weeks now what would be in it. Julie, why don't you summarize three? I guess it's four things There's that it four would things. do. It, now, remember, this is just a first step. He has... He has signed this executive order that says to his cabinet secretaries, consider changing some rules or regulations or guidance around these three these four areas actually. So, so, the, of, so the order doesn't didn't actually the do order anything. doesn't actually do anything. It could take a long time for this to go through the rulemaking, but nonetheless, he, and they could do other stuff. And they too. could do other stuff too. So the first part is association health plans, and these are associations that are formed usually around some kind of professional or employment interest. And one of the benefits that they have is that they offer health insurance. So it sounds like they want to expand the ability of folks to join those associations and to offer this insurance. And what these associations want is to be considered large group plans because then they are exempt from some of the requirements of the Affordable Care Act, including the requirement that they offer all 10 essential health benefits. And there's some other rules from which they would be exempt. And that they offer to people who have pre-existing conditions. Right. Well, they would still have to offer to people with pre-existing conditions, but there could be more leeway on how they price the premiums for the entire group. It's based on the history of the health status of the entire group. So there's some some changes around that. The um, question is, can they allow individuals to join? 
because there's no employer relationship and these things are governed by employer laws. So that would be one big question. And they hinted yesterday in a press briefing that they were going to consider ways that they could include self-employed people into joining these types of association to purchase coverage. So that was the first thing. The second theme is they want to extend the ability of people to buy short-term policies. And these are sort of like stopgap plans that have a minimal amount of benefits. Those can actually exclude pre-existing conditions. And they want to extend those from the 90 days that they're currently allowed to be sold for up to perhaps a year. And third thing is they want to be able to make it so that these tax-free programs that employers have called health reimbursement accounts, employers could put money into them, workers could use that money to buy a plan on the individual market. And finally, they they looked at competition in the healthcare industry, and they said that they're very concerned that in many markets, there's only one insurer or one or two hospital systems, and they want to find some way to tackle that issue. And that kind of came out of the blue. That was a little bit of a surprise, that one there. Altogether, um, proponents say this is going to add more choice, lower cost. And critics say, well, these plans might be less expensive, but they're going to cover less and it's going to suck some of the younger and healthier people out of the marketplace. And that could lead to premium increases for folks who remain in the more regulated plans. So and, that yeah. all happened yeah. yesterday. <laughs> so, Sarah, <laughs> you've written about what happens if you have these association health plans. Yeah. So weirdly, Tennessee, due to some state level loopholes, still has an association plan that's very popular. It's um, the Farm Bureau plan. It is not just offered to farmers. Anyone in Tennessee can join it. And it does have underwriting, meaning that they can charge you based on your health status. And I think there you see the Tennessee marketplace, it's not imploding, but it's not doing great. It's struggled to attract insurance companies. It has some of the highest premiums in the country. Um, Sabrina Corlett at Georgetown has done some great work on the Tennessee Farm Bureau. She estimates that I think 23,000 people are in this underwritten um, Farm Bureau plan, and that's 23,000 people who aren't in the general marketplace, likely people who are healthier, who are younger, who would help bring down the premiums. I looked it up the other day. Tennessee's mid-level, their, their benchmark plan, um, the premium last year, uh, the average premium per month was $478, which is pretty high. That's you know in the top 10. So I, I think like a big... There's a lot of unknowns, given that we don't actually have the regulations. We have some instructions to draft regulations. But I think there's been some, you know, this is going to implode the marketplaces. I think the Tennessee experience suggests, like, it doesn't necessarily break Obamacare, but it makes it function not not as well as it would. And I think that's – this is also an example where individuals can join one of these. And as Julie said, it's really not clear from the executive order whether this would just be small businesses or if individuals could also – get on board with those new kind of plans. So it's hard to predict what kind of rules the Trump administration will write. But in anticipation of this order coming out, I called around to everyone that I knew who was an expert in this area of of employment law, uh, which is, you know, maybe like a half dozen to 10 people. And zero of them could think of a way that individuals could get into these association health plans legally. Doesn't mean that there isn't some new creative idea that none of the people that I called thought of. But I do think that probably that is going to be harder than it might seem. And I, and I think both sides have had an incentive to really hype up the significance and the risk of that happening. The left, I think, is just kind of hair on fire and wants Trump to look terrible. And uh, I think that uh, Trump, if you heard his comments at the signing ceremony yesterday, really wants to be able to tell a story that this is the beginning of the end of Obamacare. And even though Congress couldn't repeal and replace it, that this is almost as good. And I think it's a way that he feels he could fulfill his campaign promise. 
So if if he had not also decided to withdraw the cost sharing reduction <laughs> subsidies last night, I think I think I, I you know my comment on this would have been this is probably not as big a deal as a lot of people on both sides are saying. But I do think when you kind of package all of this stuff up together, it starts to feel like more of a really serious effort to ruin the market. Well, and the people I talked to yesterday, and I don't, Julie, I know we, well we all talked to are all much more freaked out about the short term plant than they are mm-hmm. about the association health plant because the the they're already people. Who are buying short-term plans um, and finding that 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 even with their very limited benefit packages, they can do that and they can pay the penalty and they'll still pay less than buying a, a you know an Affordable Care Act compliant plan. And right now, you can only buy one. This was a guidance from the Obama administration. You can only buy these for 90 days and you can't renew them. And that's obviously something that they want to change. And unlike the association health plans, where there's questions about whether they need legislation for a lot of this, there doesn't seem to be a lot of questions about loosening the constraints on the short-term plans because it was by guidance that that tightened the constraints. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's correct. You've got to be really careful with these short-term plans because if you purchase one, they can, first of all, exclude some pre-existing conditions or reject you. But even if you're carrying one of these policies, let's say you have one for 90 days, and unfortunately during those 90 days you develop an illness, they don't have to cover that illness when you go to renew, even if it's with the same insurer. So they're very limited. But at the same time, if the ACA market still exists, Folks who are in the short-term plans and then get sick could then go on to the ACA market, which is, again, fueling the concern that this would increase the risk in that market and, and raise premiums right. for I think it, else. Bob Lucheski was saying it's the worst mm-hmm. of both worlds. You can mm-hmm. get cheaper insurance until you need more expensive insurance, and then you can get more expensive insurance. I do think the glass-half-full take on these short-term plans is that this change that allowed them to only be available for 90 days is actually really recent. It just went into effect this year. And so the first few years of the Obamacare marketplaces, these programs did exist side by side. And, you know, we can argue about how awesome the Obamacare markets are, but they were stable and functional. The concern of, of, of many experts is that enrollment in those plans was growing, and so they could mm-hmm. over time, and especially if certain insurers decided to market them aggressively, they could come to represent a larger percentage of the healthier population and, and create more risks for the marketplace. But I think it is also possible that maybe you could have some people out to the side and there would still be enough people who are subsidized in the Obamacare market to keep insurers interested. Although as premiums go up, and we saw big spikes last year, and we're seeing obviously bigger spikes for next year, that pushes that will push more and more healthy people into the short-term plans because they either they literally can't afford, the people who don't get subsidies literally can't afford the unsubsidized premiums. Um, so it, it, it starts to, I mean, it's not quite a death spiral, but it starts to push that way. Then they'll go buy the short-term the, plans the because that's who, all they can afford. The people who argue for this option make that point too. They say, if if you're getting a subsidy, the Obamacare market, like it doesn't matter that there are all of these requirements and that the plans are so expensive because you're insulated. But if you're an upper middle class person and your premiums are increasing by 25 percent a year and they're coming to represent a really large percentage of your income, like that may just not be affordable for you. And maybe there should be an option for you that is not as good, but provides you with some kind of financial protection from health risk that's available to you. I mean, I think it, it, the, the, the fact of the Obamacare premiums being so high cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But with both of these types of plans, though, the association health plans and these short-term policies, people have to be very careful because they may think they've got coverage that's protecting them and their families mm-hmm. for, from financial problems, but find that they don't. Um, so the association plans, they're still out there. They've been around for a while. I remember back when I was covering them, 
uh, 10 years or so ago, there were some companies that were investigated by the states for this mm-hmm. false marketing. They would say, hey, these plans are great. They're broad. They're comprehensive. So the brokers would sell them a plan. And then they'd find out later that they don't cover doctor office visits or they cover – I wrote about one family. that Their plan, they found out, only covered 800 a night in the hospital and $1,250 um, a day for chemotherapy, and one of their family members got cancer, and that left them with $200,000 in bills because that doesn't cover much. So some of these plans really, on the face of it, look like they're protecting you, and they may not. So I think that's going to be the concern for folks who are looking at joining an association or, or um, the short-term plans have even more limitations. The, there's also a history of the association plans just running out of money in the right. middle of the year. Right. You know, I mean, there's right. a lot of risks to <laughs> consumers right. Right. here. <laughs> Yeah, the, the history of association health plans has been long and checkered. Um, well, I want one more thing but before we, we move on to the end. And I know it feels like a million years ago, but since the last time we met, uh, the administration released its changes to the contraceptive coverage requirements in Obamacare. Remember that? It was last Friday. Um, unlike yesterday's executive order, these are actual regulations, and they made them take effect immediately, um, even though they are going to be taking public comment. So, Sarah, what, what, what was this change about? I know. This feels like I'm like having to dust off that part of my brain from a week ago that covered this. So this was essentially about widening exemptions from the mandate to cover contraceptives. And this isn't a we'd seen drafts of this floating around for for months now. I think we had a draft up on Vox back in May. So this is something they've been working on for a while. And what they did was they expanded both the type of companies that could apply for religious and moral exemptions. And the upshot of this is there are larger publicly traded companies that if they wanted to could apply for an exemption from the Obamacare birth control mandate. And that was not allowed under the rules the Obama administration set. I think the big question is how many um, companies fall into that bucket. The Trump administration has tried to argue it's very, very few. They, you know, on a call that I think some other people in this room were on, I think they kept saying it's like 99, this doesn't affect 99% of women. They said that the only companies that they expected to stop offering contraceptive coverage were companies that had already sued. sued. Right. Which Which seems like probably an underestimate. I think, did you ask a question? No. Someone else, someone, uh, another reporter asked Another, I think it was Louise Radnowski from The Journal asked about this, saying like, why is that the metric? So it's really, it's hard to tell what scope this is going to be. You know, I could see it either way. On the one hand, most companies did cover contraceptives before the Affordable Care Act, but they often had cost sharing. They might not cover IUDs and implants, which are quite expensive. So I'd expect, you know, most companies will keep this coverage, but we don't really know. You know, these public, these large publicly traded companies haven't been allowed to opt out up until now. We don't, I don't know that the lawsuits are a great way to gauge the behavior of how many might be interested in taking advantage of this exemption. Well, and also there are a number of state laws that require mm-hmm. this coverage. Um, so it, it is, it is kind of, uh, kind of, it's kind of an unknown, but I, you know, I wonder, Margo, if this isn't sort of like we were just talking about with the executive order, which sort of each side is sort of magnifying it to a place where it might not, you know, be, there might not be as many as the, the, you know, the birth control advocates say, but they're probably not going to be as few as the administration says. I, I would be really surprised if, um, it became a widespread practice mm-hmm. to not cover contraception. I think 
you know, prior to Obamacare, I think something like 85% of companies offered contraception to their workers. And there's a reason for that. I mean, I think most employers actually have an incentive for their workers not to have unplanned pregnancies and also to have, you know, the other benefits that sometimes come with taking these medications that can help with other health conditions. I mean, employers want their workers to be productive and come to work. And, you know, but I, I think you still could see less coverage. You know, there certainly are some employers where the owners don't like the idea of contraception. I also think that the forms of contraception, these long-acting reversible contraceptive methods, which are tend to be the most effective, they are the most expensive, and they are the ones that you Mm -hmm. most often see the companies that brought lawsuits having moral objections to. And so I do wonder whether certain companies, just in a desire to sort of cut costs, might use a moral or a religious excuse to stop covering those kinds of birth control and continuing to cover uh, more low-cost forms like birth control pills. Yeah, I mean, there were there were issues with this with some of the religious employers anyway who had sort of some of the accommodations where they would say you know they would say well you have to try and fail on the pill before we'll let you do anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, there there had been there had been complaints. But about one thing this. I don't see, Sarah, I'm curious. I know mm-hmm. you've studied this more closely than me, but I don't see a way for employers to keep covering contraception but impose cost sharing on yeah. I think it's sort of all or nothing a little bit. I think you're right. It's all or nothing. But like you said, you could pick or choose which types of contraceptives. So you could say, you know, I don't have an objection to birth controls, but I can't be certified without a shadow of a doubt that an IUD wouldn't ever cause an abortion. And so I think you, you're exactly right that you wouldn't see cost sharing come back, but you'd see certain forms of contraceptives maybe taken out of some, you know, religiously, you know, religiously motivated companies formularly formulary so there would still be forms of contraceptive but like you said they would not be the most effective forms that we know of also the most expensive and the most expensive (laughs) all right well uh we're going to wrap up this week with our segment that we call extra credit that's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read too don't worry if you miss it we will post these links uh on the kaiser health news site khn.org Margot, what's your extra credit this week so we've talked a lot about the policy consequences and perhaps the um, political motivations for eliminating the cost-sharing reductions. But I think there is a pretty interesting and compelling legal argument why the Trump administration is sort of making the right call here, even if their timing is weird. And Chris Jacobs, who is an extremely smart healthcare analyst who worked on the Hill for a long time, has a piece in in The Federalist making this case. And I think you want to understand why this happened and why this is would be different than the Trump administration just unilaterally stopping its payment on some other government program you care about, this piece may be clarifying. Julie? You know, amid all this, we, we also had a big hurricane that hit Puerto Rico and other uh, territories in the Caribbean, U.S. territories in the Caribbean. And I think that um, we have not been paying quite as much attention to it, but I really enjoyed reading two stories this week, one in Vice News, not even hospitals in Puerto Rico know how many people died, and another one in Vox with the headline, everything that's been reported about deaths in Puerto Rico is at odds with the official count. And they both look at really what is the death toll and why is it so hard to count and what's been going on there. And they really took a deep look at that. And I, I would say that's definitely worth looking at. Sarah, you have a new podcast. <laughs> yes, I'm going to selfishly use this opportunity to talk about a new podcast I have launching on Monday. It is called The Impact. It is about how policy affects real people. It'll be an eight-episode season, and our first season focuses all about health policy. Um, our first episode is about a Band-Aid that costs $629 and how that 
happened in American healthcare. So you can subscribe wherever wherever you get what the health. You should be able to find the impact too, and will be coming out on Monday. Great. Congratulations! Yes. Thank you. Oh. Very good. Uh, and I I get I falls to me to have the story that uh, that we all wanted to do. It's from Stat. It came out on Wednesday. It's called "An Old School Pharmacy Hand Delivers Drugs to Congress: A Little Known Perk for the Powerful." And it was sort of this cutesy little feature um, by Aaron Mershon at Stat. Except a couple of paragraphs into it, the uh, the proprietor and pharmacist at this little drugstore on Capitol Hill says, "At first, it's cool, and then you realize I'm filling some drugs that are from for some pretty serious health problems as well." And these are the people that are running the country, Kim said, listening treatments for conditions like diabetes and Alzheimer's. Um, that raised a lot of eyebrows. <laughs> like, okay, who in Congress has Alzheimer's? So sure well, enough. There was the other quote <laughs> afterwards yeah. about how they might not remember what happened. Yo, yes, that's true. <laughs> that, that yes, that's one. right. I will, yes, I will finish it. It makes you sit back. This is the pharmacist talking. It makes you sit back and say, wow, they're making the highest laws in the land and they might not even remember what happened yesterday. <laughs> So, so not surprisingly, within about four or five hours, there was a news story up on Stat that said the pharmacist to Congress has something to say about that Alzheimer's remark, <laughs> in which he kind of walked back. I didn't mean to say that anybody has Alzheimer's. It was just an example. Um, okay, then. But anyway, the, but I, I commend both stories because they are an interesting read. And in a week of really heavy news, this was something a little bit different. So that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review. That will help other people find us, too. If you have a comment, you can email us. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Julie underscore Appleby. And at Sarah Cliff. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.